Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Samir Kaji. Samir is the CEO and co-founder of a startup called Allocate. It's a Tusk Ventures portfolio company and one that's done really well. We're really excited about it. He's a really super smart guy. And so I was happy to hear that he wanted to come on. And Samir, thanks so much for joining us. Well, Bradley, thanks so much for having me and uh, all of the support in the early days of Allocate. Yeah, no, we were, we were happy to do it. So look, I guess let's start with Allocate just because that's sort of the, the most current interesting thing you're doing, um, and then we'll work backwards. So explain to listeners what Allocate does and kind of how you came up with the idea. Yeah, I mean, just to give a little bit of background, which I think is helpful context, you know, I, I spent 22 years in uh, venture banking. I started my career uh, working at Silicon Valley Bank in 99 Spent 13 years working both with companies and private funds, and then I moved on to a bank called First Republic in 2012 to really build out a group focused on what we coined the next generation of venture around 2008, 2009. You know, the market for both tech and investing in tech had changed. Uh, on the technology side, we saw you know big advancements in things like Amazon Web Services, which made uh, starting a tech company so much cheaper, and then Certainly, as the iPhone came out and the App Store, it made distribution of software so much cheaper. Along with that, the venture market was moving away from a small group of firms really controlling everything to being much more segmented and fragmented. And a lot of emerging managers that were focused on certain themes like Tusk is. And through my time at First Republic, which was eight and a half years, we realized um, one major observation which was the supply and demand side of in, you know investors that wanted to invest in funds and the number of funds out there was growing dramatically. I mean, today there's over 4,000 US VC firms. And unlike the past, it wasn't just you know the pensions, the endowments, the foundations that were looking to participate in the innovation economy, which is private, generally private companies. It was the high net worth individual, it was the family office, it was the wealth advisor. Uh, the problem was that many of these people had no way to build institutional level portfolios because they didn't have all the benefits of, let's say, a Yale. They didn't have the teams that could go out and canvas the, uh, the market for opportunities. They didn't have the teams that had the domain expertise and the ability to diligence opportunities. And in most cases, they si simply didn't have the access because either they didn't have the brand or the purchasing power to be able to get into, you know, some of the funds that have minimums of a million, five million, ten million or more. And we've long believed that the world of alternatives is going to continue to increase. Uh, companies are going to stay private longer. So we wanted to provide a solution for allocators of any size to be able to build and manage portfolios as if they were a Yale or a Stanford. And, and so, um, Specifically speaking, how do people, number one, kind of get access to it? And number two, how do you guys get access to deals? So on, on the supply side, I mean, we've had a long relationship within the venture market. As I mentioned, 22 years, our team collectively has over 100 years of working with venture funds. And so a lot of what is true about venture, it's a very relationship-oriented business. But I also think that what has happened over the last few years is many firms, as they've continued to scale, have realized that the finite group of institutional investors simply isn't large enough to continue to scale with them. So if you look at where venture was maybe 10 years ago, it was a 30 to $40 billion a year uh, business in terms of what funds are raising. 
last year well over 100 billion we expect that to continue despite maybe 2022 or i rather 23 being a little bit lighter and so many of those fund managers have said if you can offer us a low friction way to access the high network channel without the normal friction points of me having to talk to 50 families 75 wealth advisors this is a great way for us to diversify our limited partner base and not yep. have single partner risk or single LP risk. So that's one of the things that, you know, help us on the supply side. On the, uh, you know, LP side, you know, many of those folks can't write the check sizes. So if you were to invest in, let's say, top tier, you know, fund X, their minimum might be 20 million. And so what we do is we create aggregator vehicles that ultimately allow investors to invest as low as 100,000 and build a portfolio with limited funds that that could have five or six great you know tier one uh, you know tier one funds with a few hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, so y- you mentioned startups are staying private longer. Um, I-, I think as we've seen, maybe this is just sort of a blip in the market. Hopefully, but I think tech startups that have gone public are down something like sixty one percent in the market since they did. Um, if if that's a sign that the private investors are overvaluing tech startups, um, what does that mean to you in terms of the length of time to go public? Does it speed it up or does it slow it down? I, I don't I don't think there's going to be any speed up in terms of the the time to go public. I mean, as as many know, there are a lot of difficulties and cost in going public and. We've, unless things like Sarbanes-Oxley are repealed, which of course is not going to happen, we just don't see an opportunity for many private companies that are even doing fifty to hundred million in revenue to go out and and you know test the public markets and want to be public companies, especially when there's so much uh, you know private capital that's available. I think that we have seen the markets retract, but we also saw a violent upturn in 2021 where many tech companies were up 100% from their pre-pandemic highs, really as a function of the the amount of liquidity that was injected into the system through both interest rates um, going to zero, as well as the fact that the Fed balance sheet increased from $4 trillion to $9 trillion. So we expect you know the trend that we've seen for the last 20 years of companies staying private longer, which today you know the top companies are anywhere between 7 and 12 years, is going to continue to be the case. Yeah. And so speaking of which, you just raised your own Series A. Uh, so congrats on that. Um, what was it like? And did, did you have most of the commitments in hand before the market totally collapsed? Or did you have to deal with raising money in the middle of this environment? So sometimes it's better, much better to be lucky than smart. Yeah. And yeah. We, were, we were fortunately in a situation that late last year, we decided to test uh, the Series A market in January primarily as a function of our enterprise sales process, which we needed to have a strong balance sheet uh, to be able to sell into some of the enterprises that we were targeting. So uh, the the quick answer is, yes, the market was turning around November and December, but it hadn't fully turned. And so our process was actually fairly quick uh, in that we were able to, you know, get all our term sheets within four weeks. And then ultimately we're, you know, fortunate enough to close within a month after it, the market's changed. Um, had we went out today, um, we've seen a lot of founders that we work closely with that are looking around and going through their Series A process and realizing that investors 
number one, aren't writing checks, uh, you know, or, or not making term sheet offers immediately after the meeting or within a week. The diligence process does seem like it's reverting back to the pre-liquidity-fueled um, uh, steroid area that we saw in 20 and 21. And we're also seeing that investors are spending much more time triaging their existing portfolio. So if we had come out and started to raise, let's call it in April, when the markets started to really uh, downturn, I, I think it would have been a very different experience. I don't think we would have been able to raise as much potentially. Um, um, and and perhaps the, the valuation metrics would have been different because we are seeing valuations return to some level of rationality across yep. the entire stack. So what advice are you giving to founders who are now first trying to raise? The main thing that we tell people, and I, I have, I've been through three downturns. I was lending to software companies during the 99.com bubble. And what founders have to realize right now is that the most important thing, uh, especially in the early days, is just staying alive. Uh, and where we saw you know, the founder G, uh, GP market really lean to being incredibly founder friendly. I think today founders just have to reset and recalibrate their expectations in the size of the round, how quickly they're going to be able to grow given the size of the round and not optimize just on a single metric like valuation, which last year, you know, we were seeing companies raise at 10, 20, 30, 50, hundred million dollars, you know, forward looking re revenue multiples. Those days are gone. And if anybody is anchoring on what happened in 2021, unfortunately, they're going to be in for a, a really tough surprise. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. So you, you tweeted the other day, that, uh, I'll read it verbatim. I can attest that I've learned more in learned more in 90 days running a startup than I did in six years between my undergrad and my MBA. Um, what do you mean by that specifically? And, and what should our listeners kind of take away from that? And is, does it mean that there's no point in going to business school? I enjoyed doing my education, but at the end of the day, um, a lot of what I got through schooling was really relationships rather mm -hmm. than an application of how to think and real world experience. I don't think anything trumps real world experience. And, you know, working at a startup and particularly as a first time founder, every single day is moving up an incredibly steep learning curve. And while there are things that I think are interesting in, in the education system, and I do think it, you know, going to doing an undergrad was incredibly helpful for me and in, in, in it actually framing how I think about certain things, I going through this for the first time, every single day, I think I'm learning, you know, five X what I learned working for a corporation or what I worked, what I learned in a, um, in a textbook. And so, you know, they, they often say that if you can get 1% better every single year, I'm sorry, every single day, you're 37 times better by the end of the year. Well, working as a, at a startup, you really embody that. And, you know, I look back in 12 months ago and as an entrepreneur, I'm a completely different person. Uh, so you spent, and one of the reasons I think we, we were really excited about your idea when, when you came up with it is, you know, the, the 22 years that you spent in kind of venture lending and investing um, means that both you have a really good sense of what works and doesn't work uh, for startups and a really good sense uh, of how your own startup should probably function. Um, what has been a surprise for you, kind of things that you thought you knew and it turns out you didn't know? And what had, do you think has been easier for you than most founders? 
So given that we were focusing on a market that we had substantial experience in, uh, in, in our case, working with venture funds and working with limited partners, there wasn't a lot of surprises in, in terms of the supply and demand side of our marketplace. I think in terms of building the business, um, you know, the mains, uh, the main things that we learned early on were it's, it's hard to avoid as an entrepreneur going after every shiny object. And what it was surprising to me is how many shiny objects there were that were presented to us and yep. having the discipline to put those on the shelf and say, no, we're going to be laser focused and focusing on these one to three things. We're going to out execute and we're going to create the very best client experience around this thing. And that was tough. That was the, that was probably the most difficult thing that we all dealt with. And what we found the first three months, we were all chasing a lot of, you know, different disparate things that really didn't matter for the business at the time. And that was the probably the most difficult. The other thing that we learned really early on is your culture is is pretty codified by your first 10 or 15 hires. And we didn't do a good job in the early days. We talked about culture, but the culture was full of vagaries. It was, you know, a little amorphous. And then we yeah. realized like our culture can't be around things just like integrity and trust and honesty. Those are table stakes. We really need to have an operating manual of what matters, um, you know, in terms of how we operate as allocate, how does every single person make a decision? And we ultimately did that. And we realized that we were already doing those things and those things were already done, but they weren't codified in a way where somebody else comes on, they know exactly what we stand for. So those are the two big learnings from us. So look, clearly you changed course and got the culture right because the company's doing really well. How'd you do that? Well, we first uh, hired great people. We were very fortunate that many of the people we had at the front end were um, people that I'd spent a lot of time with before starting the company. And so our engineering team, I had worked with them for the better part of 14 months and understood how they th thought. And we just had this common alignment of values. And we were actually doing this unconsciously of creating this culture and constantly talking about the mode of operation. Um, as we brought on new people, what we realized is we also had to imbue that same um, mentality of everybody's an everybody's an owner. We're not in, no one's an employer. No one sits in the uh, in the uh, the passenger seat. Like we're all uh, you know we're all driving this ship. And then we started to talk about it more. Um, you know we do while we're in a, an environment where things are fairly remote. We spend a lot of time with each other, uh, and a lot of it's Zoom calls. We do, uh, you know, we do offsites where we bring everybody everybody together. We're very focused on those, and those things have been uh, just unbelievably helpful in terms of not only creating the the foundation of the culture, but also iterating it in in, in increasing the uh, the strength of the culture by employing some of the uh, the unique thoughts that some of the new employees bring in. So one question that we get a lot about you guys, and which if we get it a lot, it must mean that you get it constantly, which is obviously you're very different than an angel list or kind of party rounds. Um, but I think sometimes people have a hard time conceptualizing it. Um, what's the best way for people to understand it? Yeah, I, I, the way I view it is we're, we're the operating system for the private innovation markets that allow uh, allocators of any size 
to be able to build and manage portfolios as if they were the biggest endowment in the world. So everything from the sourcing to the diligence to the ease of actually executing a deal, uh, digitizing subscription documents, uh, reporting, and ultimately giving people the analytics to be able to be informed to make the right decisions. I'd love for everybody you know, to have portfolios that mimic any institution in the world. So that's kind of how we're building all our tooling. Now, our focus, generally speaking, is more on institutional level clients on both sides of the ledger. So a lot of the funds that we do bring on are ones that are large, um, you know, top brands. We do, we will do much more in emerging managers. And then our LPs, generally speaking, are high net worth, ultra high net worth, family offices, and most importantly, the wealth advisory community. We think that the wealth advisors have realized that the next gen of clients doesn't want to create a 60-40 portfolio and rather wants an access to alternatives and increasingly wants access to um, you know things like venture capital. And so for those wealth advisors, we put them in the middle to be able to provide the very best experience, both from a product um, quality standpoint, as well as the ease of actually executing a, a particular deal. Great. So you've talked before about there being friction between GPs and LPs. Um, how do you see the problem? And more important, maybe, how do you see the solution? Yeah, for, for GPs, fundraising has always been a really difficult thing outside of maybe the top five or, or five to 10% of the funds out there. Yep. And it's, it's because um, the LP environment is incredibly opaque. Um, there's thousands and thousands of different family offices. In fact, there's 11,000 family offices. There's nearly 20 million accredited individuals. How do you find the right people efficiently? That's always been, you know, sort of the, the biggest thing. And then ultimately, how do you manage, um, you know, these smaller checks in a way that is, um, isn't really taking too much of, of your time and isn't too much of an operational drag? On the LP side, it's the same thing. Many people are just building out their venture portfolios. And right now, many what we found in working at our, at our last shop is many of the families were incredibly wealthy, but you know, venture was a small piece of what they did, uh, 5 10%. And they had a very difficult time really finding the right opportunities. And so in many cases, they would be relying on these first-degree networks. You know, their, their cousin would send them a deal, they wouldn't really have the expertise or diligence to be able to assess the quality of the deal. They do it and ultimately would build, build these portfolios that were representative of only a small part of the universe, weren't well diversified, and in many cases were actually not high quality deals. And so that's just getting worse as there's more noise in the system, more companies, more funds. And as we've looked at the increasing participation it just became very clear that the LP side of the equation was just having a much more difficult time building quality portfolios. Um, I want to pivot a little bit, uh, and but you host a really good podcast called Venture Unlocked. Uh, in fact, your most recent guest is someone I know pretty well, um, Jordan. So yeah. um, curious for kind of like how the experience has been for you in hosting a podcast and, and in your experience, kind of what makes a good guest and what makes a bad guest? So um, when I, you know, it, the podcast was actually many years in the making, and it, it was something I'd procrastinated on until launching in 2020. And 
we had a very distinct theme of what we wanted to do, which was bring on, uh, you know, venture fund managers to talk a little bit about all of the inside baseball that goes into not only investing, but also running a firm. And we've done 85 episodes. What we found is a good guest is one that isn't necessarily uh, providing a commercial about their business, but was providing us insights that were in many cases, fairly contrarian or, um, you know, in, brutally intellectually honest and we've been really lucky to have some of those guests and vcs by nature are actually pretty good at you know expressing opinions and yeah. some of those opinions like you know we we have found to be echo chamber opinions and then we've had guests that are incredibly thoughtful and smart of thinking about how things should be done not necessarily how they've been done and have actually uh provided ideas and thoughts, at least to us, that have really made us think and made our readers think. What, um, could, uh, along the way, um, both how do you think kind of your ability to host a podcast has sort of evolved? And like, what's the lesson that you have most for other podcast hosts or people who want to start a podcast as to kind of what you need to be able to do well to make it work? The, the most important thing, and uh, in, in, since we're on a podcast, I spent a lot of time before and after uh, the podcast. That's actually where I spend the most time. So it, it, the, the amount of time you have to spend in terms of diligencing, I look at Twitter posts, I look at LinkedIn, I look at their Facebook, I look at everything they've said. I've talked to people that they, you know, they're, they're close to, to really unearth what really matters to this person and where I can double click on, on something that they have a unique insight on. So that's a lot of what makes a good podcaster. The second is, you know, a asking questions in a way that really reveal those type of thoughts. Um, and it, it took a while. I mean, the first, I, I cringe at the first few podcasts I did because they were very <laughs> mechanical. It was, you know, going from question to question. And over time, you realize the best thing to do is have a framework and then ultimately, um, you know, listen to those answers very carefully and and, and dig deeper. Yeah, I think that, that's exactly right. I, I kind of come in with a list of questions I want to ask, and I find the worst podcasts are the one where I actually ask all those questions, right? Because right. that means I was never engaged enough with the guest uh, to want to be able to um, kind of take it further and, and, and dive in deep. Um, what do you, when we always debate or, or struggle with what to do, when we record a podcast that's really not that good, whether or not to release it. Because on one hand, you know, the guests still took the time to do it and we don't want to be disrespectful to them. On the other hand, you know, we want to provide a certain level of quality for our listeners. What do you do in that situation? It's a good question because this does happen. And, and of course, you can do everything you uh, can in your power to avoid those by getting the right guests and, uh, of course, doing the proper research. But it does happen where, you know, some guests aren't as interesting we have re-recorded podcasts, believe it or not, and been fairly honest with the uh, the guests that we want to put them in the best position, and we want to have the listeners really gain something out of it. So we have, you know, actually scrapped entire sort of podcasts and said, you know, we can re-record it. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. But it's it's really important for us to put out quality product, and we've just. Right or wrong, that's the tact we've taken. 
And, and last question of the podcast, what's the vision for it going forward? Kind of continue what you're doing because it's working really well or expand it in some different direction? How, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, we've organically expanded away from just, you know, the the art of running a venture firm to more on the investing, more macro. You know, we, you know, the, the podcast is called Venture Unlocked, but, you know, we're thinking about expanding to LP, an LP series, a founder series. And so over time, it's going to expand to different type of guests, as well as uh, different type of themes under uh, under those type of guests. And we think it's important because ultimately, if you look at the private innovation market, it's LPs, GPs, and entrepreneurs, and yep. all of them uh, work together in some way. And so we want to, you know, over time expand it to uh, really cover the entire circle. Cool. That, well, I, I would definitely love to see that. Um, all right. So how do people find you? How do they uh, find Allocate? How do they find a podcast? There's so much stuff that you have to offer. What's the best way to access all of it? So, so the podcast is easy to find. It's ventureunlocked.substack.com. Um, I, my LinkedIn, my Twitter, you know, is open for messages. Our company is allocate.co, um, where you can people can apply to be a member, and ultimately, um, you know, reach out to anybody on our team. But you know, in terms of the podcast, it's on Substack, iTunes, Spotify, and then uh, for me, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, and then email. Cool. So look, to, to the listeners, obviously I'm biased because I'm an investor in Allocate, but I would just say everything that this guy does is really interesting, right? Whether it's uh, the company he created, the podcast he hosts, or everything else. So why well, I wanted to have him on and, and would really encourage you guys to check out his podcast. And if, if, you're, if what Allocate does sounds appealing to you as either a founder or an investor, you know, please reach out to him. So Samir, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Bradley. And uh, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Us too.